Jonathan, do you want to take that one? Hey, everybody. It's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with another episode of 2023 season four Surf and Sales podcast. We are glad to be here. Uh, big shout out to HubSpot for naming us the number two sales podcast last year uh, to be listening to in sales, which is like, oh, they didn't even tell us they were doing it. So we're glad to do it. Uh, and then they actually put us on the HubSpot podcast network, uh, which we're super appreciative of. And by all means, um, they've got a ton of great sales podcasts there. So yes, keep listening to us. But if you're looking for more, go there. Uh, also, May 2023 uh, is the next Surf and Sales event in Costa Rica as usual. Please come register. We already have some amazing attendees coming. And uh, this entire episode is going to be dedicated to uh, Jonathan Mahan, Mahan and Jordana Zelvin for uh, getting them to come to the Surf and Sales event. They didn't even know <laughs> all we're doing is it's a fucking hard sell. We're going to teach people how to hard sell in this episode. Uh, that being said, no, that's not the case. Uh, Jonathan, one, correct me on your last name. And Jordana, uh, both of you go ahead and say hello and, and tell people where you're coming from, your perspective, of, so they understand where your perspective is coming in. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll kick off and, and, and no worries, Richard, about mispronouncing the name. A is like the most versatile vowel in the entire English language. So having two A's in my name makes it hard. Uh, the way I pronounce it is Mayhan, but uh, I've gotten every different variety of, of, of that last name pronunciation, as you, as you can imagine. So uh, I'm calling in today from Colorado Springs and uh, really joining this conversation today from the mind frame of someone who's been working in sales for the last 10 years and a couple of years ago started working on a uh, what used to be a side project, which has now become kind of the main business that me and Jordana do called the Practice Lab, where we help salespeople to practice their selling skills in the same ways that performers, athletes, and musicians practice their skills. And it's been a fun journey the last few years, kind of learning how to do this and learning how to run a business and help people practice and develop skill and all of that. So looking forward to unpacking all that. And uh, Richard, you got, you pronounced my name beautifully, Jordana Zeldin calling from upstate New York. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been a sales coach and trainer for the last number of years. And actually last time I was on the podcast, you both kind of like beat me up in a good way to encourage me to find out how the hell I differentiated myself from every other sales trainer out there. And then I found the practice lab with Jonathan and feel pretty significantly differentiated. So I'm excited to share some of, you know, some of those updates and, and some of what really lights my fire about. What's, what's um, the name of the, what's the name of the um, practice lab? It's called the practice lab, Richard. That's it. Oh it's literally the name, Richard. <laughs> it is literally the name Richard. of the company. God, I'm just going to hang up now and let you take over. I was trying to see how long that we could do this episode before I said anything. So, we have reached that moment. Oh so I also know, um, I know people yeah. can get in touch with you. What's the fun way for them to get in touch with you? We'll explain more about it. They can text what? Oh, so any, well, anyone who's listening, we're going to be launching. I feel like this is too salesy for like the first 10 minutes. We're launching uh, a free. Okay, he didn't call launching... it the hard sell episode. Jesus. It is the hard sell right. episode. <laughs> Dude, that's the next name of our next podcast, Scott. The hard sell episode brought to you by Surf and Sale. Good Lord. So we, we are soon launching a free community for sellers who are excited to use practice to develop their sales skills. And if you are someone who's listening, who know nothing about us and who have heard no minutes of this episode and are excited about that idea and feel inspired to text practice, the word practice to 66866, you can, but I have a feeling that people are going to decide if they want to do that after they hear 
more from us. Well, you're going to get you're going to get text messages. For I'm sure. ready. Practice. For sure. six, six, yeah, Buckle I'm ready. Up. What's the number again? Give it to them so they don't have to hit six me. six eight six six. Just text the word practice, and you will be taken care of from there. Cool. Okay. So, what type of practice are they getting? Is it cold call practice? Is it objection handling practice? Is it email and copywriting practice? Is it demo practice? What is so, the actual practice that they're going to get? So I think we should just back up a little bit if we can from this free community and what will be practice in the community to talk about practice itself, right? Because practice is a word that is thrown around a lot in sales and it typically means one thing. It usually means role-playing. It usually means role-playing all or most of a sales conversation. And it usually means doing it at game speed, right? where the expectation is that someone is playing your prospect and you are playing the seller and you better come out with the right and smooth thing to say. And the type of practice that Jonathan and I have been kind of studying in other disciplines and that we've created for sellers is very, very different from all of that. So why don't we start there? If yeah, you guys- what, how is it different? The current way? What's wrong with yeah. it? Pardon? What's wrong with the current way? Jonathan, you've, you've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, so the way sales practice is typically done that Jordan has kind of mentioned um, doesn't really align with how people learn. And for a handful of reasons, right? First off is the container and the environment that it's happening in. Typically, role-playing a sales team is done in front of your managers or in front of a large group of peers. And again, the expectation is we're all here to show we know how to do this. And we're doing this role-play to make sure you know how to do this. And if you don't know how to do this, you know, we got to point it out to you. So it feels like a performance, right? Or it feels like a test, which is why most salespeople hate it. But also, when you are showing up in that, that kind of environment where it's kind of a performance or a test, you don't actually learn a whole lot from doing that. Because if you do, you know, let's say a whole discovery call or a whole cold call at once, unbroken at game speed, you don't really have the opportunity to choose a new path, to try a new skill. When you're doing it at game speed, doing the whole thing at once, all you can really do is just like regurgitate what you always do. So it's just kind of doing another repetition of what you've already done 16 repetitions of this week. The best kind of practice is where you focus on doing things differently. And in order to and to do things differently, what the human brain needs is to slow it down so that it can choose a new path, right? Choose a new set of words or new direction to take the conversation. Generally, it needs to be a smaller chunk because again, the human brain can't focus on everything all at the same time. And it certainly can't focus on making changes to everything all at the same time. So the best practice, the type of practice you might see a musician using when they're learning a new piece is to zoom in a particular moment that you want to change or you want to get better at and just practice that moment over and over again. And to get really intentional about what exactly you want to do differently and to allow yourself the, the, the space to go slowly in service of choosing a new path and actually doing it differently. Because again, if you do it at game speed, you typically just replicate what you've always done. You need to slow down to be able to choose a new path. And then because you're doing such a small piece, it allows you the time to do the behavior, get some feedback, immediately implement that feedback and do the behavior again, get some more feedback on just one thing, and then change that one thing on your next time around. And none of that can happen if you're doing like a 15 minute long role play of a discovery. And again, you're going at a game speed. All you can really accomplish in that environment is just doing again what you already know how to do. So it's a really good test, but it's not effective for changing behaviors and building skills in new areas. So are, we, are we sort of talking about creating an environment to practice that's free of consequence? Mm, yeah. Yeah. The, the, that's such a great question, Scott. And like the psychological safety piece 
And I know that's like a, a jargony word that gets thrown around, but like the safety to fail, the safety to make mistakes, the the safety to ask for help and feedback is really, really important for practicing. Again, if skill development and behavior change is the goal, um, absolutely. And that's actually, I mean, you know, what's so interesting and one of the things that's really problematic about sales cultures generally is the norm is usually a lack of psychological safety, right? Where there's so much performance pressure, um, celebrations are based on results rather than attempts. And there's often not, unless you have a really enlightened sales leader who understands, you know, how to create the environment for people to bring their full and best selves to the team, um, you know, often creates a bit of a, a, a kind of pressure cooker environment, which makes it a little scary to learn, a little scary to acknowledge that you don't know, a little scary to ask for feedback. So what's interesting about the practice space is that um, that all of the behaviors that happen in practice, and there's actually a, a really interesting kind of nerdy academic paper on this, risk-taking, making mistakes, asking for help and feedback, sharing information with the group are all what are called learning behaviors that map to psychological safety. And what's cool about that is that psychological safety maps to high performance and really great cultures. So the safety piece is important from a cultural perspective. You know, how is the leader conducting itself and what kind of signals is a leader sending to the team in or, or outside of practice? But in order to have effective practice, yes, there needs to be room to fail, iterate, and make mistakes. Let me ask you or give you a couple different practice scenarios and you tell me if they're the right way or the wrong way. Cool. Okay. Um, so there's four people on a Zoom call and I'm going to give an objection and Jonathan's going to deliver the rebuttal to that. Right way or the wrong way to practice? Well, I have a question for you. Have you demonstrated what the right way is or identified what great looks or sounds like in advance? Let's say, let's say yes. Let's say yes, I have. Like I, I, I would go first and demonstrate it. Good. I would say that's a good way to practice. A couple of things okay. to kind of you know make it even better is that to create the right environment, it'd be best if you as the leader went first and got feedback from the group on how to do better and then went again and implemented that feedback. That really sends strong signals that not doing it perfect the first time is okay and expected. The purpose is to get better. Yeah. So that would make the practice better. The other piece that'd be really important is once you'd identify in advance what good looks like, you'd give each person an attempt, but then you stop, reflect on how that went, and then give them another attempt to kind of implement the feedback and do better the second time so they could level up right there in the session. Scenario but two. Scenario two. And this is a true story. I once worked with one of my sales reps on only the first like 15 seconds of their call opening. And I made them do it. I'm not kidding. Probably 50 times in a row until they got it right over and over again. And I would, I went first was like, this is how it should sound. This is how you do it. Then they would go. And I, each time I was like, nope, missed that. Nope. Tripped up on that. I'll do it again. 50 times in a row. Right way or wrong way? One-on-one, -on -one, so, by the way. One-on-one, -on -one, not on Zoom, was in person, sequestered from anybody else's ears and eyes. Right way or the wrong way? So I'd say it's a mix of, of both. The fact that they had an opportunity to iterate in that moment on your feedback is really great. One way that it can be improved is to focus your feedback less on what they did wrong and the one aspect that they can improve in the next iteration. 
So we found that what we call like forward focused. Well, it, I understand it, how that's different. It's, it's, it's a bit of like a morale thing in a way when people feel like they're building some building on something, when you're able to tell them one thing they did well, and one thing to improve upon, it feels like they're reaching and moving towards something. When people are told about the thing they, they did wrong and need to do better, it's a, it's a different feel. And mm-hmm. especially when you're, you know, you risk exhausting somebody with 50 repetitions at once, which is fine, which is why the, the best practice is to push the feedback for towards the future. It's interesting. This particular rep to this day credits that session as the most impactful session of their whole entire career. Well, I'm not surprised. Not to say that I did it the right way because maybe I didn't, but um, I wonder about that. I am the type of person in a feedback session. If every single time I went for 50 times, you told me one thing I did good and one thing that I could improve upon, I'm the type of individual that would be like, please stop telling me the things I did good. That, that would feel like insincere or something like that. It's probably because I'm very self-critical. I'm just like, stop telling me what I did right. I don't want to care about that part. I'm curious to how you think, Richard. You're on mute, by the way, as usual. There we go. (laughs) That happened happened the last time I was on the podcast. (laughs) Way to go. There it is. There's the cup. Ding, ding, ding. Richard, you're on mute. (laughs) I was I was sitting back because I didn't want to jump in. Um, I agree. I agree in two both. One is that it has to be a micro session, right? Um, a particular part of the pitch. I also agree with Scott uh, and do the same thing. If anybody ever wants to hear me imitate Scott when he does this, because I I've seen him do it, it's hilarious. Um, that being said, um, I like the repetition. I like the idea of I go down the path of, okay, how do you think that was on a scale of one to 10 and you can't choose seven because everybody loves to choose seven, right? It's not too cocky and it's just right. And then I will simply say, you know, great. What's the difference between a six and a 10? What's the difference between an eight and a 10? What's the difference between a nine and a 10? Mm. Um, and they'll tell, they'll say things. And then to your, to what y'all are both saying is I then turn to the team and say, great. Did Richard really do a six? What do y'all think he did? What what was the number? And what I've noticed is people are all too self-critical of themselves, right? And so part of it is creating that safe space for people to hear some feedback that, hey, it's not that bad, that, hey, you are better than you think and creating that safe space, which I agree with. And then I'm like, Scott, now do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. And so for me, I, I feel like the way I do it, does both, like it creates that safe space, it acknowledges that safe space, but then we get into the very specifics. Agree or disagree with Richard, Jonathan? <laughs> um, on a scale of I, one to 10, do you- Oh, oh he's thinking, this means he disagrees. He's yes, trying to I be know, polite I right know. now. He's just trying to be polite. Don't fucking be polite. <laughs> it's okay, just don't be polite. Just tell him if he's wrong. Jordana had no problem telling me that I was only- Right and wrong. Half wrong. But actually- but really, just really quickly, I just want to jump in on one thing and then I want to hear from Jonathan. But like, if if you're a rep who doesn't like to be told a thing they did well and wants to be told the areas to improve, then as a manager who's coaching the rep, it's, it's their job to adjust to what works for you. But I just want to clarify that like the one thing you did well, one thing you can improve upon isn't like the shit sandwich. It's literally like just making sure to raise the awareness of the thing to keep so that they keep doing it and then change one thing. So that's that's the utility of that when it makes sense for the rep. 
Jonathan, over to you. <laughs> I uh, I kind of I, I, I kind of forgot uh, what Richard said um, <laughs> as That's I was listening so to you. Brilliant. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, the best part. That's I, the I best part. I don't think my mere mortal mind could even handle it, Richard. That's probably what happened. My brain just dumped it because it was like this is too profound, too profound for me to handle. <laughs> um, one, often, one, one, go ahead. I say one thought I had uh, uh, around what Scott was sharing is I'm curious. The 50 sessions did it take 50 sessions to get it right, or did they get it right at 20 and then you just did 30 to make sure they couldn't get it wrong? That's a great question. They actually got it right a few times, and then I would make them try to replicate it, and they couldn't. So until they replicated it a couple of times, I didn't yeah. stop. To me, it seems a little, uh, maybe a little telling that it took 50 to get there. I'm curious, did you give them up front, like, I don't know, a half a dozen or 10 things that they needed to do that meant that this is what good looks like? This is a perfect scorecard, 10 things, and then have them work on all 10 things at once? Or did you have them work at like thing one, then introduce thing two, then introduce thing three, kind of sequentially? Well, if you know me, you would know that there was no way in hell I had any sort of like templated format like that. That was all orchestrated perfectly. <laughs> so let's get that part out of the way straight away. Um, it was, God, this was 10 plus years ago. Um, there's no way that I tried to ask them to do like 10, 12, 15 things all at once. I probably was like, there's three things that I'm looking for. Maybe I told them three or four. That was it. Okay. Yeah. Cause in general, where I was going with that is that in general, you'll get faster gains quicker by focusing on one piece at a time. Right. So maybe part of a perfect opener yeah. is tone. My advice would be for the first five repetitions, don't even give a crap about what words they use. Just focus on their tone. Once they got yeah. their tone good, then we start looking at, you know, the first few words. And once they got the general words down, then we start focusing on the exact word choice and are there more, more impactful words. And yeah. once that's done, then we work on the pause and the timing for dramatic effect. Like pick one piece at a time. Don't give people a scorecard of six things and say, go do all six. I agree with that. That's definitely an area that, that now if I was working with somebody, I would do that. And back then I didn't. What I find interesting though, Richard, is that they have no problem criticizing me, but they're very slow to criticize you. What do you think that's all about? Well, well, I, I don't even have to ask, answer that question. Come on, Scott. You well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to just jump in in terms of like the, is it right? Is it wrong? And you know, there's, there's a lot of gray area here, but Richard, with the idea of like, would you rate it a six or an eight or a 10 or a, that can be like it can be helpful, but I, but we found that it's really helpful, particularly helpful to just identify like what, what are the specific should, elements that so make for great. Thing, so here's, here's my question, at least in the way I did it. And I explained it very quickly, creating that safe space where they can actually start to self-assess is a huge piece. Mm, like that's, yeah. that is the hardest part, right? Like it's so funny because salespeople, I can't remember, I think someone said it on our podcast or maybe it was the other one, but, um, that they said, you know, it's interesting that salespeople are supposed to be selling change to all their customers. Yet when someone comes in to tell them to change their sales skills, they just become, re they refuse so often. Like it's hard, that mental piece is really hard. So for me, part of the game is getting them to be self-aware because they often hear it. They often know. And I'm very conscious to say, you know, uh, hey, Jonathan, by the way, Scale of one can have you do, by the way, ignore the fact that you've never said it this way before. Like right. any stumblings of ums and ahs, that doesn't count towards your score, right? How do you feel like you did? 
And by them starting to self-assess and then getting the team to give them assessment, which often is the same thing I'm going to give them, it's a safety piece because the team is giving it to them versus Richard, the trainer. Um, and then I do chime in with things. And so it, it for me, I, I feel like what I'm trying to do aligns a little bit more with what you're doing, which is why, Scott, they're not disagreeing with me because, you know, they know I'm fucking brilliant compared to you. So I'll go ahead and disagree with one thing, Richard. Um, while it's not harmful, I don't think the scale of one to ten assessment you. You. is. Oh, uh... <laughs> just went on mute. <laughs> oh, Jonathan just dropped his connection. Moving on. No, while the scale of one to ten probably doesn't hurt anything, I don't know if it actually helps a ton. Um, that arbitrary number isn't really actionable. The actionable piece is what was good that I want to replicate next time, and what could I actually do better with next time? Or to put it in Scott's preferred language, what did I not like that I want to change next time? Yeah. That's the actionable part. The scale of one to ten is just a little bit of extra fluff that gets in the way. I would jump right into the meat of, okay, Jonathan, you just I, did it. So that's what you'd I'll, like. What do you want? I'll to push change? back hardcore on that. Oh, yeah, because then we end up sounding like we're lecturing to people. I've got to get in my mind. I've got to get them to open their mindset to hearing feedback, and it's a whole lot easier if you've done any level of therapy. That once you open your mind, you kind of start to figure out your own shit. And I, you know, my latest line these days is, you know, stop believing the lies in your head. Right, yeah. that's our biggest hindrance. So. <clears throat> I love I that you're that. pushing back. I love that you're disagreeing with me. I'm just going to stick to my guns on this. <laughs> well, I, I think what's that. interesting is you guys are it. both, yeah, you're both talking about something a little bit different. One, Richard is talking about how do you like emotionally and psychologically prime the person to be open to the idea of feedback, which is a really important part of creating a good container for feedback. And then Jonathan is like, well, how do you help make sure that the feedback that's given or, or even self-assess leads to actionable tactical change. And those are both really important components. So what's I agree the, with you both. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the frequency with which people should be practicing? I'm walking you into this question. I feel like I know the answer, but what's the frequency? How often should people be practicing? Mm -hmm. My answers sound kind of lame, Jordana. Do you have something interesting? I think my answer <laughs> might be a little lame too. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I want to say kind of like as as much as possible in a way, or you know, like when I was on a what does that what first... does that mean as much as possible? Well, if I did if I did it once a week and said that's as much as it's humanly possible for me, is that a good? Well, 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 here's the thing, like some practice is better than no practice. More practice is better than some practice. I think, you know, one of the things is that all too often, and Richard kind of alluded to this, like all feedback, all training, all coaching happens from like the top down in a sales team. And if it's not put on the calendar by your manager or your enablement team, it's not going to happen. Um, the sales team that I was on that had a really rich and healthy culture of practice, like we were practicing peer to peer pretty regularly in addition. What does to pretty regularly mean? Oh, I mean, like sometimes I, I mean, Jonathan and I still sometimes like when we have a big client meeting, like we'll practice our agenda in advance of our meeting. Like we'll get in our reps before the thing is about to happen in order to feel warm and smooth. So I don't, I don't have a, an exact prescribed number of times one should be practicing, but I'll say some is better than none. And a really great opportunity to practice is be before the thing you have to do. That's what, what I would say. What would, what would your answer be, Jonathan? How often should I people will... be practicing? Um, I will give a little bit more narrow of a range, right? What she said is true. Even if she's doing it once a month, it's better than not doing it at all, right? But um, in my career, there have been times when I practiced every day and that did not feel like too much. And that brought about really strong gains. It was like 30 to 45 minutes every day. There have been times in my career where I practiced twice a week for an hour. 
that also didn't feel like too much. In fact, I probably could have benefited from more. There have been times in my career when I only practiced once a week, and that was actually still enough to move the needle and be significant. So I'm going to say my recommendation is between every day, mm-hmm. once a day, and once a week um, for 30 to 60 minutes is probably my recommendation. But again, even if it starts at just once a month, you're still light years ahead of not doing it at all. So <laughs> the more the better uh, is, is the really general and general answer. And what's Scott, interesting too, Scott, yeah, what no, we're going to say algorithm say because I know that you spent ages building an algorithm on the best day yes. times it's like fucking linkedin's algorithm scott has the algorithm That's right of practice what is yeah, your very scientific very scientific very scientific I, i'm i'm surprised by both of your answers uh, i i was expecting you both to say every day that's what i was expecting because if i'm a i don't know professional anything professional dancer, professional baseball player, whatever, musician. I would think that if you want to get good at something, you've got to practice every single day. So I was surprised to hear that. I think our answers might have been a mix of, you know, idealism mixed with realism. Um, <laughs> yes, well, once a day is I, best. Hour day. I, have a, I have another question. Is there a best day of the week to practice? <laughs> maybe Monday to get the, you know, rest of the weekend off, but in general, just, you know, uh, as often as possible. But well, if I, wrong day, day, I don't know about a best day, but there's a, there's, there's the least powerful day. Yes. Is it tomorrow? Time. Is it tomorrow? Friday afternoon is the least no. powerful and impactful time. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be there Friday afternoon and whatever you just learned, you forget on Saturday and Sunday. There's no time to implement what you just learned. I think though, what, what Jonathan said too is right. Like, I think, yeah, every day is best, but for anybody who's listening, like the chances are pretty good that 90% of people listening don't do any practice. So for them to hear, you got to practice every day in order for it to be effective to go from zero to every day makes for a pretty big gap. So like, I I'd like to, I don't yeah, think that, ahead. I don't think that they have to do it every day to have any kind of impact, but if you want to be great, you should do it every single day. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that that's that. idealism. I think that that's just factual. I don't know anybody who got really good at whatever their craft is that didn't practice it every single day. Dude, I don't know no a single way person. I got good at losing all my hair without practicing every <laughs> single fucking day. We just exactly. lost Scott. Where oh, did no. Scott go? He's like, that was like a mic drop comment. He just yeah. left. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I just, you're doing that on oh, purpose, okay. Richard. That's what's happening. I'm not touching any of your shit, dude. I don't believe you. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I set I up an environment. I set up an environment years ago where people basically could get as much practice as they wanted. What I did, but this is back a long time ago when everybody had to go to the office, but I would hold three optional practice sessions per day. One before work, one at lunch and one after work. And I did it five days a week. I rotated topics of focus. I also rotate, rotated who was delivering it. So if we were all on the sales leadership team, I would only need one more person and all five of us would get one day where we were doing the practice stuff that particular day. Would you really give Richard a, a day? <laughs> believe it or not, work? believe it or not, I did. I worked and, on that one. And those, <laughs> um, that structure was the most successful one that I ever 
deployed by I'm going to chime in on one more thing to that structure. That is too. so cool. I just have to say to anyone listening to like how incredibly rare that is for a sales yeah. leader to have created yeah. a space like that. By yeah. far the best structure that I ever had. I also wow. kept track, even though it was, it was optional, but I kept track of who came to which yeah. sessions and, you know, use that strategically to my advantage and reps advantage. You'd, you'd see somebody who was performing poorly and I'd be like, oh, you, you didn't practice at all the last two months, shockingly. Mm -hmm. And you'd see this person who was performing poorly, who suddenly started going to all these things, whose performance went up. And you're like, wow, how did this person turn it around? Well, they went to 26 sessions in the last, you know, 35 days or something like that. So That's amazing. that was the best structure that I, that I ever deployed. It was a season of my life where I could do that kind of stuff personally. And I had a group of people who were able to do it as well and commit to it. Was never mandatory, always optional. So I got about, for those curious, I probably got about 30 to 50% attendance wow. per session. I'll, I'm going to chime in and, and add something that people don't know and, and don't misinterpret what I'm going to say. Those who listen to us a lot. So you got to speak up, Richard. It's really hard to hear you. So I will say something so Scott can hear me. Would you like to borrow my fucking hearing aids, dude? Um, we got it. When got I was it. a part of that team, um, one of the other great things that Scott did, and it's it, and it wasn't from a cocky perspective. For people who know Scott, he definitely has this charisma about him and his energy, and, and people want to be a part of that. Um, sometimes Scott was would say, let's pick this one topic, and we would do that on Friday, or it would be Scott's day to do something, and people could only go to those if they got the golden ticket, you know, we went Willy Wonka style and, and golden ticketed it. Um, and the only way they could do it was either by closing something that week, or if they went to one or two of the other trainings. And so, you know, you can build it in, in fun ways um, to, to do that. Right. So that, you know, finding the right topic that's unique and different, not that I, you wouldn't want your managers to go train on that separately, but if you create this, kind of culture environment like Scott did. It was a it was a fun way to sort of encourage it to happen. And even to Scott's point of like Friday afternoons are, you know, not the best, we would come up with these different topics on a Friday afternoon around, I don't know, mental health or how to find a new hobby so that those things were not just necessarily a quote unquote only sales training. So I encourage mm -hmm. that. And it was probably one of the best experiences I ever had working with someone. So um just for people listening, if you're like trying to figure out how to deploy something, it's just another idea. Scott, uh, can so, I just uh, ask you, can I yeah. ask you just some questions about like how you set up those sessions or like what specifically were the things that you did that you think led to 30 to 50% attendance for something that most reps, when they hear practice or role play, want to like run screaming for the hills? I think the, the rotation of topics was important. So it was never stale um then the rotation of trainers coaches for lack of a better term managers is actually who they were yeah so it was always coming from somebody different you know if people were on richard's team they're always getting coached by him but they see jordana's team over there and one richard might have a rep who like 
really resonates with Jordana and secretly wishes they were on her team, this is a perfect opportunity to get exposure to her kind of, of coaching. I, I think another thing that, that helped it out was um, the rotation of times. So it wasn't just like, it's always at noon and it screwed up people's lunch all the time. And people got turned off from that. It was like, some people's schedule was an early morning kind of schedule. Some people's schedule was a, you know, end of day kind of schedule. So they had options. So they had some sort of locus of control over this stuff that I think helped a lot. So that's, a, that's some of the mm. hypotheses mm. that I have. I also think it helped for, um, for those, for those people on the team, because this team was like 50 to 60 people. It was, a lot. It was more than that, actually. It was almost yeah. like 100 people. Yeah. Um, they, wow. People who were parents, right? They couldn't make the morning one. You know, yeah. maybe drop the kids off or the parents needed to leave a little early on certain days. Right. They have to pick up the, like, so that was another beautiful piece was like really trying to, Scott's always been great at like, how do I meet my reps, my team members, even like, you know, my peers where they are? Mm. in their life and so i think that was another huge piece um they just sort of said look we know we know you got lives and go do so we're going to do the best we can and what? and we had no resources for this but we had no that's right yeah. there was nothing like this is scott figuring how the fuck do i do this like can you imagine having a team of 100 people and you don't get an enablement person right like it's crazy so yeah there was no such thing as enablement then at all even this leads us into my next question which is, is really like, why don't people create an environment where their team can practice? It seems so obvious and necessary. Why, why doesn't it happen? That's a really good question. <laughs> Especially when you consider that a lot of the sport, a lot of the sales world does have background in you know, sports or performance or music, right? Um, how could this group of people whose very income depends on top performance not take the principles they learned about top performance from their past and apply it here. Um, so it's a big topic. I'll throw a couple of answers, uh, suggestions out to Danimal too. Hell, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. But I think the big reason is that reps are very resistant to it, right? Um, there are a lot of managers out there who are like, oh, that'd be a cool idea. And then they try it once and the reps fucking hate it. And they're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. I won't do it anymore. We'll just do a regular training. Um, so that's part of it. And then I think maybe uh, along with it as well, is that it's, it's, it's hard to know how to practice it effectively because in order to practice something, you need to have an environment you can practice in which mirrors and is similar to the environment you have to perform in, right? So of course, for something like you know a sports team, it's not too difficult. You got enough players, typically, you can have an A team and a B team playing against each other, and there we go. It's the environment that you perform in. In something like aviation, it's a little more tricky. So they have these really high tech like simulators that you can practice flying in where the environment you practice in is similar to the environment you perform in. In sales though, it seems to be hard to create that, right? Hard to create that environment, that simulator where you can like be in conversation with a colleague and have it actually feel similar to and follow the same rules as a conversation with a prospect. And a lot of times folks will try role play, they'll run into that problem, realize it doesn't feel very realistic and just kind of give up and move on. Um, I think there's probably the challenges that I see. I think some of the other challenges, and we've heard this directly from enablers, is like, it can be very hard to break this big act of selling down into these discrete skills in the same way that you can like with tennis, like forehand, backhand, but you know, 
Um, Jonathan in particular has this beautiful brain that recognizes these patterns that's given birth to how we've built our curriculum where he's able to to kind of notice like these specific moments in a sales conversation like Scott what we did with anchor questions for your Patreon like there's a moment after you present a feature or aspect of your solution in a demo where something can happen you can either ask a do nothing question like any questions you can ask no questions and just move on and turn the whole thing into a feature dumping monologue or you can take an opportunity in that moment to ask a question that is specifically designed to engage your prospect and help them to think about what you've just shown them and why it matters to them. For a lot of enablement people, they've shared with us, they're like, we know so-and-so is a great seller and we have no idea what specifically it is that they're doing that's making it so. Maybe it's their talk time, right? Or maybe it's it's the, like, the patient score in Gong. But once enablement and sales leaders are given like the specific set of skills to look for, they kind of can't unsee, <laughs> unsee those skills. Wait, I'm and confused. when it's broken. Yeah, go ahead, Richard. So you're saying enablement people can't figure out how to tell them this? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is like a lot of enablement managers have said to us, like we've, we've you know, we've had conversations with, with them and they're like, we would love to hear from all of you what specifically so-and-so is doing better than so-and-so. We know they're a better seller, but it's very difficult for us to identify the specific behaviors that they're doing that make them a top performer. So the enablement person is saying that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, an enablement? Well, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's tricky. It's tricky, right? Because I mean, Jonathan, you might, you might be able to kind of better explain the way that your brain thinks about breaking down these behaviors, but you know, the, 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 the short, the long-winded answer, I guess, Scott, is that I think it can be hard for people to know what specific skills they should be practicing. They practice selling, they practice objection handling, they practice demoing, but within selling, demoing, objection handling are these discrete skills that can be broken down in practice. And that can be a bit of a hard nut to crack. Yeah, Does anyone understand that. what I've just said at all? Yes. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I do. I do. Scott, I do. I understand. I get slightly frustrated. I understand that reps might know, might not know what they need to practice. It frustrates me to no end to think that sales managers and yes, enablement people don't know what their reps need to practice. Yeah. I think like when you place... gave the enablement story about, I know what, I know who our number one seller is, but I have no idea what makes them good. Yeah. I, I would fire that enablement person. I would too. That's what I, mean. <laughs> I, I don't understand how that's possible. So I, I get, would... that first part frustrates me. I would, I would step up in the defense of these enablement people a little bit and say that a lot of them can identify it, but they're identifying it at a very high level that isn't necessarily actionable or practicable, that's right? Not, so they might- That's not identifying that's it then. That's the yeah, but, the, but they'll say, well, well, this person's conversation, right? It's more balanced talk time. But again, telling reps, go have more balanced talk time isn't a specific practicable behavior. Now I understand. A specific that's moment, clear. That's more- right? There we go. That's better. Now I yeah. shouldn't so, yeah. so it all. So it- it's, it's, it's almost a two-step process. First, you do need to understand at a high level what good selling looks like, right? But then you need to really zoom in to like, what exact moment, where is that fork in the road? What is that critical moment where the conversation either goes down this path or it goes down this path? And then once you understand that's the moment that matters, then you got to figure out 
what are the variables that affect whether the conversation goes down this path or that path? And again, that can be really hard to really to really break into and, and to understand. Uh, and that's, again, what you really need to do really good effective practice is you need to be able to zoom into that exact moment. You need to be able to teach reps the difference between going down path A and path B, and you need to give them the opportunity to practice their behaviors to ensure that they're setting themselves up to go down path B more often. And again, Scott, breaking it down to that level is tough. Scott, well, did you do that, that in your practice sessions? Were you able to identify the specific behaviors and then facilitate practice around those? I certainly like to think that I yeah. was able to, yeah. Because yeah. what happens in the absence of that, right? If you don't have that amount of specifics and you say, all right, folks, let's role play objection handling. What ends up happening is people just show up, they hear an objection they've heard before and they deliver kind of the same response they've done before. And it kind of cements their current way of doing it. They don't get any better. Like I use the example, I've tied my shoes 10,000 times, but after like age 10, I never got any better at tying my shoes. I just kept doing it the same way I've always <laughs> done it. But right? you shouldn't need to. There's a reason we don't teach people how to turn butter anymore. Like, <laughs> But so, so similarly, right? If you're pulling people into a practice environment and you're not giving them specific things to focus on, specific things to change, specific things to do better, and you're just saying, just do it the way you always do it. I actually don't see a ton of value in that because it's like- I agree. It's and I, the same thing I over and over. I even go so far as it's a mindset thing, like just on the thing on objections. And then we got to move to sort of the other side of this podcast, which is, is, you know, you don't handle objections. You marinate them. You got to teach them how to marinate in that objection, spend time talking about it, figuring it out. Yes. Right. Um, so that is, I, I agree with you. Uh, this is, this is the, the best part of the entire podcast. Uh, we need each of you to sell us this pin. So, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Just I would kidding. handle that question so differently than I would in the early days as a new yeah. seller when I just told them about all the features and functions. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, no, this is the part, and we're, I think we're going to go a little long, but that's okay. It's This time has flown by, and it's been awesome. Um, you know, the, this is the part where we turn around to, to both of you and say, what questions do you have for us? Although I think you've been asking us questions all along, but if there's something specific you want to ask, that's great. Quick shout out to HubSpot again uh, for, for just working with us and supporting us. And again, Surfing Sales, uh, May 23 is coming up. Uh, a few spots left. Uh, Jordana, I expect you to go to surfingsales.com. Oh. Jonathan asks a question and put down your deposit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what, seriously though, what, what questions do you have? For, and by the way, quickly give out the text and the word practice. What's the number they need to text? So it's 66866, text practice to that number and we will send you monthly calendar invites for skills specific practice labs with your peers from across the B2B landscape cool. for free. What questions do y'all have for us? I'd actually love to hear Scott's thoughts on uh, the question of why don't more teams practice? Why don't more sales leaders create the space to practice, right? You've got a much longer longer career in sales leadership and have had more interactions with sales leaders probably than, you, than either of us have. So why do you think sales leaders aren't creating regular practice opportunities for their teams? He just said you're older than me, Scott. <laughs> yes. Well, I feel older than you. So that makes sense. Two answers for you. Number one, they literally don't know how because they're not any good at selling themselves. Mm-hmm. If they used to be good at it, they've completely forgotten how to because they're so far removed. So they actually don't want to like demonstrate and show their team their inability to do this correctly because it would be embarrassing. The second answer is they're too lazy. 
they don't want to do this anymore. They want to hire ready-made reps. They want to hire ready-made SDRs that they just like hired for experience. I can leave them alone. They'll do everything perfect. And I can just be my VP of spreadsheets and think about strategic things. That's why. Mm. That's my two, that's my two answers. I want I want to push back on your too lazy hypothesis. I've never met a sales manager who's lazy. However, they are. Oh my god! You, well, this is how I know that I'm way older than you and, <laughs> and, and have more experience because you literally just told me you've never met a lazy sales manager. This it, that's like Eddie Murphy comedic gold. You just have not been around long <laughs> enough. <laughs> or maybe or maybe I just give folks the benefit of the doubt too. I yeah, you you, 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 you might just be way kinder than me. Every one of your clients person. is a lazy sales manager. <laughs> yeah, I would, um, I would stick up for these sales managers and say the environment they're put in, the expectations that are put on them does not set them up for success, right? Well, I don't, I'm, not gonna disagree. I'm not going to disagree with that. I'm not going to disagree with that, but I, I work with these people all the time. And, and I, I can think of one person in particular right now that we did some coaching with uh, their reps and their reps were like, that was awesome. We've never done that before. And I went, What? And then the next time I talked to that CEO and that VP of sales, I was like, how come that person said y'all never done this before? And he was like, well, we don't really do practice and role plays and stuff like that. I'm like, why? And then I I looked at the, the CEO and I'm like, do you give them space to do all this? Do you have them in a 9,000 meetings that they shouldn't be in? And the CEO was like, no, 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 no. And, and asked the VP like, Hey, back me up. And the VP backed him up. So I was like, how come you don't do this? And their answer was basically, yeah, I should, I probably should. That's straight up laziness. Straight up. Hmm. I have a follow on question. If I, if I may. Um, So Scott, as we, as we've been sharing with you, you know, we're, looking to develop a product that will make it easier for sales leaders and enablers to facilitate practice for their teams. I'm curious, given what you know of the landscape, what are the elements that you think would need to be in that product and those resources in order to make it a light lift for them? Wow. Good question. I can answer that if you want. Yeah. you or Richard. Yeah. I'm going to take too long to think of an answer. Yeah. So one, um, again, knowing your audience, you actually have multiple generations. So the millennial Gen Zs may be okay with more of a self-paced AI platform where they could record something and then it gives them feedback, right? The Gen Xers may shy away from that a little bit and prefer human-to-human feedback. So I think the key piece is how do you find that balance, right? You're going to have some salespeople, regardless of generation, um, who love training and coaching, right? And they'll do whatever they give them and they'll do self-paced and they'll read books and listen to podcasts and blogs. And, you know, we just had JC Pollard on yesterday who like just a machine around this stuff. Um, So I think that's something you got to consider is, well, how are you going to deliver the feedback and in what capacity um, is really, really important. Um, And I bring up the generational stuff in the mindset of not everyone of every generation is exactly what I said. It's just what I've seen, right? Like I just have seen like, you know, like I'm 53, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm getting to that stage of get the fuck off my lawn, 
right? It's just, mm. you know, I'm, I'm seeing that. And, um, but there are still tons of people, myself included, who will be like, okay, I need to go listen to them. So I think that's a key piece. Um, I think the other piece is how do you create that open-minded space, the growth mindset, the safety space to recognize this is where we learn, right? This is not a judgment of you. Um, and that's going to be a, a piece to look at too. Um, so a lot of what I think I just said was a lot of psychological, like mindset stuff. Important. Um, I, then on top of that, you got to get super specific, right? Which I think you already do. Like, here's the program on how to talk about, to talk with someone in procurement. Like I've got a whole program now on that. I mean, and by program, I mean, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I can build that out, which is very different to what y'all said in the beginning, which is run the whole role play, right? That just doesn't work. So making sure you have those micro minute pieces. And then the final piece is if you're going to do it in some sort of, uh, automated self-serve video recording format you may have to decide if you're going to require someone to go through each step before they get to the next right so for some people who've been in sales long they may be like oh i want to go hear that procurement thing because one i've never been taught that i don't need to know how to ask open and close any questions at a basic level right i don't so anyway I, I don't know the answer to that i don't know if it must be in a certain order or will you allow people to jump around? And I think that's what you got to ask your ears about. So I know Scott's got to jump for those um, legitimately had to jump. I didn't kick him out, but that's my answer to that question. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what do you think? Like, am I on the right path? Am I wrong? Or maybe Richard, what about this? Like, Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, for, for us, one of the things that feels most exciting about practice, human to human practice is the is the human piece. Yes. So we're not interested in developing anything that involves AI at all. And instead are interested in developing resources for sales leaders and enablement folks to facilitate human to human live skills-based practice for their teams, essentially putting, putting the hands of developing I, I people. Agree 100%. Back. I yeah. think hundred percent that's, that's where the best of it is. Yeah. I think the question is, is it, would it make sense to have both, right? So you come in and you do the human to human, you have the client hire you, whatever. And then once they do that, it's like, well, by the way, here's some things you could use to <clears throat> keep coaching or letting certain reps who want to have access to it do. Because um, again, I think you just gotta pay attention to the audience. We gotta pay attention to what's happening around us. Um, AI is going to replace all of our salespeople very soon. Just about everybody. If you think about it, we can, I just had this conversation. We can now as a human comfortably go buy something three to $4,000 without ever talking to a human, right? TV, right? Or a car, Carvana, yeah. Car, right? You know, which is $20,000. And if we're not careful and mindful to that, it will replace us even further because it's going in that direction. And so that's the reason I'm conscious of making sure that it's aware because by using those tools you can then make humans less irrelevant where we are still relevant so anyway the long answer so on a scale of one to ten how they do i'm so skeptical of the idea of ai replacing salespeople, but maybe that's i'm the, wrong that's the challenge like that's the piece i'm, I'm seeing everybody's like okay well you can be skeptical but like the joke i made earlier which was yeah people probably thought we would never need to stop churning butter People probably, thought, yeah. people probably thought, 
oh God, you know, if you go back and look at those pictures of when the cars and the horses were still on the road at the same time, right? Like you, it, we have to take this mindset of like, even though we may not like it, maybe we're afraid of it. We're afraid of that AI piece. Um, you know, it's still coming. So I don't, I don't know. The answer. Mm -hmm. But I agree. I think I, to me, to me, I'm also a little skeptical about it. The one piece, though, that maybe leads, lends a little credence to that theory is combining AI with product-led growth strategies, I think might be able to do the job, right? Where the product sells itself and the AI just lends a little bit of a helping hand. Um, you know, those two come working together might be able to replace salespeople. Um, but in which case, the, the motion of selling looks very different, right? You aren't taking a demo, you aren't. What, so what's a, product, what's a product that you think that... AI couldn't do? What's a product you would never buy without talking to a human? I think it has to do with the complexity of the product and then even the newness of the product, right? The reason Carvana works because we've all been driving cars our entire lives and we feel pretty comfortable buying a car. But for me as a first-time business owner purchasing a CRM system and a data management tool, that's new to me. Mm. I don't know what questions to ask. I wouldn't feel confident making that decision because I don't even know what I should be asking, what I should be looking at, what I should be considering because I've never done this before. So I think the newness of the product and the novelty of the product has to do with it. Um, and then the complexity, right, uh, of what it can do. Again, if you look at a really complex piece of software that integrates with six different systems and has like 60 different ways to use it, I think you need a human to kind of guide you through those options and help you establish, you know, your path and your set of options versus a, a, a simpler tool. That's easy to understand. You can buy without a salesperson, particularly yeah, no, no. again, if you have product-led growth. And, and so again, in my pushback is, okay, you're right. We're not there yet, but in 10 years, will we? Because I guarantee you, you know, I'm old enough to remember that people freaked out. What do you mean? I remember like the late nineties, early two thousands and people were like, oh my God, the Christmas buying season is going to hit a billion dollars in online revenue in 2000. Consumers will spend a billion. How much do we spend now? All of it, right? Like, and so it's that, it's Amazon, right? Amazon started just selling books, right? Like, it's like, so I agree with you that there are pieces and I am hopeful that we never become so irrelevant. I just think we have to be mindful to that. And if your buyer wants to buy your training and product service, why wouldn't you make it available as a component to the human piece. Yeah. It's like I've got videos. People can go get my videos in sales training if they don't want to do it, right? They can't afford it. So it's available. So yeah. yeah. It's definitely an interesting topic. Yeah, totally. We can keep I know we could go for another hour or two. Um, and I know we've already <laughs> gone over. So um on a scale of one to ten, how do you rate this podcast? What you know, of all the podcasts you've ever done, are we at <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't have to answer the question. Are, can, I, you, can I pick seven? A, yeah, I can. <laughs> no, you cannot pick the fucking seven. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'd rate myself a solid four to five on my answer to Scott's question on why, why sales teams don't practice, but the experience of being here has been awesome. Yeah. As usual, Richard. Um, yeah. This has been great, really. Um, Jonathan and Jordana, it's Jonathan's nice to know you, Jordana. It's great to see you again. And, and so Kat, nice to see you. Um, I still didn't see that deposit coming in, Jordan. So I'm waiting. <laughs> Jordan, you, Jonathan, you can go in and do it too, by the way. You can. Uh, you know. Oh, my check's already in the mail. There you go. There, see? I feel like I haven't Next seen in anybody mail. in person since before COVID. I don't know how I do with a, yeah. <laughs> with a group of people for a weekend. My social uh, skills have gotten rusty. 
Yeah, it, that's the whole reason to go. We need to connect. Yeah, so to your point, we have to reconnect as humans. Well, I actually think that's true. Yeah, that's that feels like a fundamental biological need that feels different from churning butter or a horse or a car. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you both for giving us the time and, and bringing Thanks, this. Richard. And again, feel free to, you know, split out the uh, text practice to what's the number? 66? 66866. 66866. Everybody, it, it's very cool. I promise you it's worth your time. And I know them well enough to know they're not going to spam the shit out of you. So no, um, we won't. Just with a calendar invite to some cool sales practice. That's it. (laughs) All right. Thank you both. I appreciate the time and and good to see you. Thanks so much, Richard. All right. Bye. Thanks for having us on. Sure.